Hey everyone, Travis McKenzie here again, and I'm back with another very special edition of the Inner Voice podcast. If you made a list of the 10 greatest triathletes of all time, I would guess that most people would have today's guest on their list somewhere. As a kid growing up in Australia, triathlon was practically a national sport, and the athletes racing at the time were household names. This gentleman is no exception. It truly was a lifetime moment for me to be able to have this conversation with Craig Alexander, or more affectionately known as Crowey, a five-time world champion, including three victories at the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii. This is another edition of the iCore Connected Project, which has allowed me to meet and converse with amazing athletes and human beings from around the world, all while under different levels of stay-at-home orders due to the coronavirus pandemic that we are all facing. This is a broad discussion on many things triathlon-related, but it also gave me an amazing insight into Crowey's life as a dad and a partner to Neri, who happens to be on the front lines as an emergency room nurse. Thank you again to the team at iCor for the opportunity to have this incredible discussion with a hero of mine. It would mean a lot if you could support them by sending a thumbs up on social media for the great work they are doing. And it would be even more impactful if you headed to iCorelabs.com and purchased some of their game-changing CBD products. Right now, you'll receive 25% off each and every order. Now, here's Crowey. Super excited to have our friend Craig Alexander here on the show and being co-hosted with me again is Travis McKenzie. I feel like Craig, quote unquote, Crowey doesn't need much of an introduction, but I will say uh, he's become a good friend. He and his whole family, multiple years in Kona. He's five-time Ironman world champion between full distance and half distance. He's an all-around great human being. He has a couple of witty remarks here and there. Uh, you can also see that he's donning my favorite haircut as of recently. Um, I don't know if that's in solidarity for COVID-19 support or you lost a bet. But uh, yeah, so from here, I'm going to remove myself and I will let the two amazing Australian voices take over between Travis and Craig. John, thanks again, mate. Um, Crow, it's great to be here with you. I wonder if we can get some subtitles along the bottom just so people understand uh, what we're saying to each other. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, it might not be necessary. Now, John gave you a great intro, five-time world champion, three-time Ironman champion, uh, father of three, uh, probably the best uh, male triathlete to come from Australia, if not the world. Uh, it's an honour to be here with you today, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh I think we're all in this sort of uncertain period of lockdown and um, looking for things to do. And it, it's great to, you know, I, was, I was happy to actually get the invite from John to come on and have a chat and just touch base. Yeah. Yeah. We always, um, we always start or I've always started with kind of talking about the situation that we're in and obviously COVID-19 is a worldwide pandemic and everyone's affected in, in some way. And I think that you're in a really uh, unique situation where your wife is actually on the front lines um, as, a, as an emergency nurse. Do you want to tell us how she's coping, what kind of impact that's having on her at the moment? Um, yeah. Yeah, well, she, she's been an emergency nurse for close on 25 years now. And, um, yeah, at a couple of big city hospitals in Sydney. Um, she worked at St George hospital which is one of the big teaching hospitals in sydney for 20 years and she's now at our local hospital sutherland hospital um still in the er department obviously with covid19 um that's changed things a lot they had to set up a a covid clinic a testing clinic um which sort of ran parallel to the emergency department so she alternates shifts between the the usual emergency rooms and and the clinic um, I guess the impact, she doesn't say too much when she comes home. I ask how the shifts have been, but, you know, she told me that they've been doing a lot of planning and strategy because they are expecting, um, I guess, the number of infections to peak. So yeah. where we are in, in Australia, I think we're a little behind the rest of the world in terms of where they are um, with their testing and where they are, I guess, with the impact of the virus in the community and, and what stage of lockdown we're at and all that sort of flow on things. So yeah. we're definitely behind Europe um, in terms of where they had to uh, start dealing with the crisis. And 
Yeah, I think from what I understand from what Neri said, they're planning for it to peak in another week or two here in terms of the number of tests and the number of infections. Um, so, yeah, she's working a lot. She's working about, uh, I think she's worked six out of the last seven days. Um, yeah. She's working again this afternoon. So uh, she's very busy, very busy, but uh, she loves her job. And, you know, obviously they're taking all the necessary precautions, all the healthcare workers, they're just they're doing amazing work right now, you know, on the front line. Um, I guess putting themselves in harm's way in terms of infection, but also, you know, dealing with interacting and treating people who are highly stressed. Um, yeah. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of misinformation out there as well. It's funny, we live in a world now where uh, in terms of disseminating information, it's, it's not all about uh, what's right, it's about what's first. A yeah. lot of people are putting information out there and um, yeah, I think there's just a, a lot of fear around the unknown and the uncertainty of, of how it's going to play out. And um, But, yeah, it's, it's a very serious time. And, you know, she, Neri's always loved her, her work. She's loved being an emergency nurse. I mean, loves serving the community and they do amazing work. I mean, I, I remember even pre-COVID-19, 20 years ago when, when she when she started, um, you know, going out with her and her friends and just hearing the the dinner conversation of the things that they have to deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis that, yeah, you know, you don't see as yeah. a normal person every day. You don't see the things they have to deal with. So they're, they're special people and they just take it in their stride. They don't really want pats on the back. They just want to be treated with respect really and um, but just get about their work. So, yeah, she's she's right in the thick of it, Neri, right now and um, had been working about three or four shifts a week but it's up to about six, six days a week right now and, probably will be that for the foreseeable future yeah well definitely hats off to her and, and her colleagues and i think that you're right there's you know it's a a thankless job in some regard and anytime anyone goes to the hospital it's usually one of the worst times of their lives but people yeah. like your wife go there every single day and they have to reconcile you know what they see and what they experience and 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 mm. uh, and take that home and and then be you know be normal in the family um have you had conversations more so recently around how the rest of the family is seeing this. Obviously, as you mentioned, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of um, people who are stressed. Has it been something that's been a bit more of a conversation within the family? Yeah, we, we've talked about it. I mean, it's it's in your face every day. I mean, the kids are not at school and haven't been at school for two or three weeks now. Obviously, there's restrictions in place. Um, again, different countries are at different stages of where they're at with their lockdown. or uh, But we're restricted. We're not allowed really to leave the house other than to go for food or medical treatment, um, you're allowed to exercise. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it sort of dominates daily mm-hmm. conversation. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say we sit around and watch the news so much, but the kids are very aware and, we, you know, we always ask Neri when she gets home from work how the shift's gone and um, things like that. So the kids are very aware of what's going on and very interested in it, I yeah. guess. It's, it's the world. They live in the world as much as we do. So, yeah. Um, but we're just trying not to make it dominate 24-7, if that makes sense. I mean, it's hard not to in these yeah. sort of situations. But, yeah, I mean, as far as it relates to the rest of the family, we just we just get about the homeschooling. Um, yeah. we, have, we have three kids. The eldest two, a lot of it is done online these days. So I have very little role to play other than just float around in the background. Um, yeah. Make sure they're doing the homework. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. So, um and, and in fairness to Neri's, Neri's set up a pretty good little structure around here. They know what time they start. We're not sticking to the, the playbook exactly yeah. right. We, we take breaks whenever we want. We start and finish when we want. And, yeah. um, you know, from what I understand, it's going to be a long haul in terms of the homeschooling. It may go ahead for another 10 or 12 weeks. So mm. we're, we're trying to pace ourselves and not be uh, not come out of the blocks too quick and run out of steam halfway. So. Yeah, that's um, smart. Have you guys, we, have you noticed a shift in the roles around the house? You know, obviously you mentioned that Neri's working a lot more. Um, you know, are, are you having to take on more around the house at these in these moments? Well, I'd like to say that I always do a lot around the house, but, <laughs> um, yeah, I think I am. I think we're just trying to pick up the slack a lot yeah. more, the rest of us. Um, you know, we've always had the kids do their jobs. They've got their jobs, all three of them. Um, they have their jobs to do. Um, 
and they're sticking to that. But yeah, obviously, there's with Neri at work six shifts a week. There's a lot more to do around here, and yeah, yeah, we all ju- we all just chip in. I mean, it's it's no major drama. I think Neri's instilled. Neri grew up on a farm, so she has unbelievable work ethic. Yeah, and she's instilled that in the kids. They they don't mind rolling their sleeves up and, and helping out. So, um, yeah, I mean, as much as it's great, you know, routine's great. I think the kids thrive with routine and especially with their schooling. Um, you know, we are trying to keep some semblance of routine in terms of the schooling and also doing the jobs around the house, but yeah. trying to keep it, a little, keep it a little light as well. You know, we we did a, one of those online yoga classes yesterday, which yeah. was interesting. Yeah. Um, in the middle of their school day, we gave them a break and, yeah, so trying to keep it light as well. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's why. I think it's, um, you know, for them there's probably a bit of an identity loss as well. You know, they're not around their friends and not able yeah. to, to interact in person or they're, they're probably well and truly intact and um, in interacting with them virtually. But um, I wonder for you, obviously, you know, it shows to me that human beings first now, you know, with everything happening, not so much working on your identity as an athlete, but I worry about some of the other athletes who may not have much going on. They may not have families and the yeah. only thing they really have is their sports. Um, so that, that piece, the identity piece, but then the ability to, to not, you know, not to not be able to race, not be able to make income, not be able to, you know, eventually, um, you know, pay themselves over time. Like have you heard or had any contact with, with people in that situation and how they're kind of dealing with that at the moment? Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard the word unprecedented used more than I have in the last couple of months, but it is unprecedented in terms of the uncertainty with when it's going to end. Um, You know, I guess, and as it relates to your question, I guess if you're an athlete and you think, you know, you've got to batten down the hatches for two or four weeks, you can get through that if you know there's light at the end of the tunnel. But a lot of the races have been, either cancelled or postponed indefinitely. Some haven't been rescheduled yet. I think there is a lot of uncertainty for athletes in terms of when uh, they will be able to make an income. But I guess what's changed in the landscape for our sport is the advent of the professional triathletes organisation. Um, mm. You know, the last 12 months, obviously they were, they've launched and they were meant to have their Collins Cup this year. Um, and because of COVID-19, that's had, had to be rescheduled, the Collins Cup. I mean, the PTO is not on hold. It's still going ahead. Yeah. So um, the organisation is working behind the scenes. And something that I've never seen at, uh, throughout my time in the sport, the, the money that had been allocated as prize money for the Collins Cup, which was their race that they were putting on, and also the end-of-year rankings, world rankings, they've just pulled it up and, and distributed it amongst the athletes now. So yeah, yeah. The, the top 100 male and female athletes in the world all got and, – and the lowest payment was $5,000. US So um, the 100-ranked athlete, male and female, got $5,000. US And I think, you know, it's not a lot of money, but it's something. It's something yeah. that's coming in. Um, hopefully, you know, it'll tide the athletes over until they can, they can race again. I mean, I'm hopeful there will be races – towards the end of summer or, or even, I guess, fall for, for people in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. Um, you just don't know, though. So, yeah, I think yeah. there is that uncertainty w- with the income. As far as, you know, I guess a lot of athletes are goal-oriented and, and like to have and are more motivated when they have that impending race coming. I, I think it's a good opportunity as an athlete. You've you got to look at the positives in any situation. And the positives right now, and the things that you can control right now as an athlete are you don't have to race immediately. So maybe there's an opportunity there to work on some things that possibly you can only usually work on during an off-season or a pre-season. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would look at it as an extended pre-season and, you know, work on um, some of those weaknesses and some of those things that maybe have been on the back burner with uh, the other. I guess the other are more immediate racing priorities. Um, yeah, I think that's really good so, advice. And I wonder, what does that mean for you? Um, you know, you've you raced a, a while back at Geelong and had a, an amazing race, but it had been quite a quite a while between races for you. What's what's your planning? How has this impacted your 2020 goals? And has this potentially extended your career another year? What, what are you thinking at the moment? 
Yeah, may have. You know, I, I just sort of take it on a year-to-year basis these days. I mean, I'm st- I still love to train and I'll always train whether or not I'm racing. I think I'll always train to stay in shape just for general health and well-being and it's, it's just such a big part of my life. I, I feel better when I when I train, even if it's not training specifically for a race or, you know, even more recently a lot of my training has been more unstructured than it used to be. Um, you know, back in my heyday, there used to be sort of a structure with the training and a purpose to every session. That's not the case anymore, but I still get a lot of enjoyment out of the sessions. It's just good to be doing something, to be moving. I exercise more and more with my family now, particularly my, my two oldest children who are a good little athletes. So I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. Yeah. Um, and and with, that, with that training, I guess when you have 25 years of good aerobic conditioning, it doesn't take much to get in shape. So that that's, I guess that's what led me down the path of still throwing some races into my, my schedule. I mean, my priority, my day-to-day priority is not the racing anymore. I feel it's more promotional work for the sponsors and making myself more accessible and available. I mean, when I was racing more, I guess the, the sponsors would leverage the partnership with your results. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Now I'm not racing and, and training as much, I think, there's other ways to leverage partnerships uh, in terms of you know, things like we're doing today, going to places, expos, trade shows, interacting with, I guess, with your target audience and all things that take up a lot of time that typically you you try to stay away from when, when you're training for big events and when you're in, I guess, a different kind of lockdown, a training lockdown where you're just eating, sleeping and training and the focus is on, you know, your upcoming events. So Yeah. Well, a lot of that's being shifted too. A lot of that's shifted too, I think, with the current climate of sponsorships and partnerships and social media and content creation. I think yeah. there's a lot more emphasis on that than there previously was when, as you mentioned, it was really results based on, you know, getting the big sponsors and getting the big dollars. Now it's not necessarily the case. Yeah, for sure. I think certainly the last decade um, with social media and, and YouTube channels and you are more accessible to your audience than you've ever been. Um, yeah. but obviously with that comes a responsibility. I mean, that's a different skill set in itself. And some people do that really well and some not as well. And I think it's something that I know for me personally, it sort of came towards the back end of my career, but had I been an athlete starting out, I certainly would have sought more help and outsourced some expertise and, um, maybe some guidance, because I think when you look at the athletes who really do it well, it's, it comes across great. It, it's really, it's really done well. Um, so I guess that's another string that athletes can add to their bow and something that maybe they can focus mm-hmm. on in, in this time, providing content, as you yeah. mentioned. I mean, you know, you, you've, you've got to show a return on investment for your, for your partners and some of that is with results and performance. And, and I still believe in a, in a performance industry, the greatest endorsement is high performance itself. But, um, yeah. you know, creating content, I mean, I guess I look behind the curtains, training, how, how things work for high-level athletes. That, that's interesting to, yeah. to athletes of any level. So I, I think, you know, it's, it certainly gives them an opportunity in this period now to access things that maybe athletes 10 or 15 years ago wouldn't have had access to. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's good advice. Um, Kyle PC sends his, uh, his love and says that now you're sitting at home a little bit more, you might have a chance to read the book. <laughs> Uh, well, <laughs> but you might be busy too. Um, now, I want to talk about you talked about outsourcing some help. I, I, I've always wondered um, do you have any mentors, people you looked up to, coaches, athletes you really enjoyed spending time with, anyone who kind of led you along your path in your career? Mate, I'm just going to switch headphones here so I don't yeah. run out of battery, but then I'll answer your question. That was a smooth, very easy addition. Well done. Now he looks like a DJ. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> His DJ new Carl. career is going to start spinning records. Love it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I was very lucky. So to, to answer your question, I think, I mean, I started um, in a time where the sport looks a little different to what it does now. There weren't as many coaches around. Um, a lot of the coaches yeah. who were, in the sport was sort of, I guess, involved with the institutes and the academies. Um, and I didn't come up as a junior. I think if 
if you came up through that junior pathway, you got access to more of those coaches. I, I started as a 20 or 21-year-old in the sport where I, at that time juniors was 20 and under. So, um, But I was very fortunate. I, I got access to a lot of great athletes. I, I trained in an area where there were world champions in not just triathlon but in uh, cycling and, and running as well. So um, a lot of our training groups included athletes of that caliber. So I saw firsthand the kind of training they did, the way they went about their business. Um, yeah, and a few a few athletes took me under their wing as well, Greg Welsh, McKeeley Jones, a couple of very famous Australian triathletes, yeah. probably the two most famous Australian triathletes. I was often in training groups with them and they were very kind and generous with their time to me, took me under their wing a little bit. And, um, yeah, I made it a point really to just seek out good people. Um, I never had a coach as such, but I had a lot of great mentors. I mean, when I, when I stepped up in distance to race Ironman, I worked with a guy called Nick White um, mm-hmm. from Arizona. He was a young coach and I worked with Nick for two or three years and he was a huge help to me, um, brought a different, I guess, set of eyes to the situation. He was looking at my training and, and looking at myself as an athlete through a different, I guess, filter to what I was seeing it from. And uh, he was invaluable help. Um, Pete Coulson uh, was a guy who coached athletes and uh, had access to, you know, he's now based in LA. He, he helped Miller. He was a world junior track cyclist, yeah. uh, world, junior tra- uh, world junior champion in track cycling. And um, so he helped me a lot. Later in my career, Dave Scott, when I was in Boulder, helped me. Um, he wrote my strength and conditioning program for me. So I was always very lucky I had access to people who had the specific knowledge that I wanted or needed and and I had access to them and, and became friends with a lot of them as well. Um, yeah. But I, I was very lucky in that regard. I think, you know, I, I think back now to my career and I often think it, it would have been handy to have a, a more hands-on coach Um you know, because obviously a coach is a lot of things. It's not only someone who knows the science and the X's and O's, but it's someone with experience. Mm-hmm. It's someone who gets to know you personally as well yeah. uh, and your personality and what makes you tick. And often great coaching doesn't even involve talking about the sport. It might be it might be talking about the mental side or the emotional side of where you're at and getting you back on track. So, yeah. But I always have, pe- I always have people available to me uh, to help me with all of those things anyway. So. Yeah, I think it's crucial. I, I, you know, it's when I look back now at the last twenty five years, it's probably the one thing, and maybe the only thing that I did consistently well, which was surround myself with good people, and that, that always started at home with Neri and my family. Yeah. But professionally, I had great mentors, great advisors, coaches um, at my fingertips, really, and and that's it's really important. Uh, I can't yeah. overstate how important that is because whilst there is a certain freedom that comes with, I guess, writing your own program. It takes a certain personality to be able to get success doing it that way, I think. And, mm. uh, a lot of people need a different level of accountability and maybe a different set of eyes, not not so much looking over your shoulder but just checking in once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fair to say there's not one way to get there. Uh, you know, your way was your way and I think you – came up in a golden age of triathlon in Australia. You know, I'm uh, quite a few years younger than you, but I grew up watching you on TV and Greg Walsh and, you know, the Two Is Blue series. And, you know, there was this access to racing and there was, you know, as I say, you were at the forefront of the sport really um, as you were coming up. Now, I know you did your first race at Kernel Worlds in 93. Um, how did you find your way into the sport? I know that you, you play traditional team sports before that. What was journey to kind of get to your first first race yeah it's funny because all through my teenage years in high school and up until i was 20 i, I played team sports soccer I, I loved soccer um and but i was always interested in i guess multi-discipline events i used to love to watch the decathlon at the olympic games i loved daily thompson when i was growing up yeah um the olympic decathlon champion and i would watch hawaii every year on television um which is kind of funny because I was, I guess, as a younger athlete, I was more speed-based at the school athletics carnivals. I typically did better at the shorter distance events. Um, 
but I was intrigued and interested by that race in Hawaii and, and another event which you will know well growing up in Australia, the Cool and Gatta Gold. I used to love to yeah. watch the Cool and Gatta Gold, which is, uh, for those who don't know, it's a, a surf Ironman event. So it's swimming in the ocean, running on the beach, uh, pa- paddling in Malibu and, and also a surf ski. Um, it's a very popular and, and famous sport in Australia. And they've got an iconic event. It's a four-hour race. And I used to love to watch watch that race. So I was always interested in, I guess, multidiscipline events and also longer events, the endurance events. And then when I was at university and uh, I stopped playing soccer, I had a job. I was working for a builder and I hurt myself. I had to get an operation, had a hernia. Didn't do any sports for six months and just started jogging, running to get mm-hmm. to get back in shape. You know, one day I'd, I'd come in the door from a tough day at uni and I think it was my mum said to me, I was just sitting there and I think I'd been at the university bar and she yeah. just said, you know, you used to always be so active. You don't do anything these days. And that sort of got me out the door that afternoon. I went for a run and I just started jogging, going for 30 minute jogs every second day. Um, and ironically, my best mate at university at the time was, uh, he was a very accomplished cyclist. He was an A grade cyclist and he used to do triathlons for cross training in his off season. Mm-hmm. And I was always asking him about the races and he said, look, mate, it's very easy to get into. I can I can help you get into it. And at that point I'd actually started doing what we called in Australia biathlons. I think they're now called yeah. aquathons, um, yeah. swim run, swim, swim run, run races. And, yeah. Yeah, and as, as, as you would know, pretty much every surf club had them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of organised events too that had prize money. So I think I did 12 months of biathlons before I ever did a triathlon, uh, sort of the swim run races, and they were typically a 500-metre swim and a 5K run. Um, so I'd done a little bit of uh, biathlon racing, um, and, yeah, my best mate at uni at the time, I was always badgering him with questions about bikes <laughs> and triathlon and this, that and the other, and yeah, he said, mate, it's a very easy sport to get into. Let me help you. So we, we looked through, I mean, this was before, you used to look online to buy things. It was, it was a newspaper. It was the classifiers, the Trading Post. We looked mm-hmm. at the Trading Post and found a bike for about six, $700. Um, I went and he came with me. We went to the house. Um, it was my size. He said, mate, this will this will be this perfect will for you. Just start, yeah. yeah, this will do starting out. So bought it on the, it was a Thursday and I went and did that race in Cornell on the Sunday. So I yeah, was, amazing. I, I was bitten by the bug immediately. I loved it. Yeah, it's uh, totally reminiscing with some of those stories. I um, I actually did my first triathlon in 93 too. I was eight years old. My dad was a triathlete in uh-huh. Geelong. Um, he was, you know, one of the best amateurs in the country um, in the 90s and he would race with Greg Stewart and all of those guys. And so they would, as you would know, they had the kids race on the Saturday and then the, the adult race on the Sunday or in the afternoon. So that's how I kind of got my start. Um, and then, you know, played Aussie Rules football, AFL when I was a teenager and then when I was 20 started training with Bill Davron and um, Brad Carterfelt and Ty Butterfield and Nikki Egged and all these guys on the Gold Coast um, did my first Ironman when I was 20 so I was kind of you know grew up with the sport and as you say it was it was a it was an amazing time in the country you had the two is blue uh, triathlon series the formula one types you had the uncle Toby's races on the weekend they were on, on the TV yeah. and you'd sit around and watch them and then obviously um, Kona every year showing the on the on the wide world of sports um, every year. So yeah, it was a it was a great time to be be around triathlon. Do you have yeah? Do you have one memory or one favorite race? And I'm going to tell you my favorite race of yours, um, and then I want to hear yours. Uh, it was in Ironman Melbourne, first Ironman Melbourne. Um, I was living in Canada at the time. Uh, it was probably the one of the first races that had really good coverage. Um, that you could watch. Uh, I remember you, Cam Brown, bashing each other around until 35Ks into the marathon. Uh, and then you ended up going sub eight hours for the first time. Cam just missed out on eight hours. But I was on the edge of my seat in the middle of the night, uh, screaming at the, at the screen. Um, so that's my favorite memory of watching you race. But what's your favorite race and favorite memory? Oh, that's tough. It's, that's like trying to choose between. Your kids, watch your kids. Your watch your, who's your favorite kid? <laughs> um, that was a great race that you mentioned. And funnily enough, a Facebook memory came up yesterday. It was eight years ago. Yesterday, yeah. so 
Yeah. Um, it was it was an interesting time in the sport because we used to have there was a obviously a global series of Ironman events and then you had the World Championships, but that was the first year two thousand and twelve where the sport got a little more structure and they put regional championships in. Mm-hmm. And there were three. There was um, Ironman Melbourne, which was the Asia Pac champs. There was uh, Ironman Texas, which was the North American champs, and Frankfurt, which was the European championships. So there were three other races that attracted a great field that year. Um, and Melbourne certainly did attract a good field. And obviously, you know, growing up in Geelong, you'd know that Melbourne's a Melbourne's a great sporting city, one of the mm. great sporting cities around the world, and they just embraced that race. I know in the lead up to to the race itself, and obviously I was lucky enough to win it. And the, the next few days afterwards, I did I think more media interviews than after any of my Kona victories. Um, I was on the radio with Eddie McGuire, um, Triple M, and all all the sports talkback sports shows and. Melbourne really did embrace that race. It was it was a special race, and for me, that's part of my memory of it. How um, mm-hmm. how how big an event it was, uh, and and the crowds that came out to watch it. They they promoted it extensively on the television, yeah, and on the radio in, in the lead up. Huge crowd and and just a big triathlon community down in Melbourne too. Um, you mentioned Geelong. Uh, Geelong's got a great history and background in triathlon, and still has great races there. A lot of great athletes have come out of Geelong runners and triathletes. Yeah, it was yep. just it was just a great race that one. And obviously, I got to lock horns with with Cam, Freddie, Freddie Van Lee, and another Ironman yep. World Champ, Aniko Lano. Aniko, yeah, yeah. It was like the two really of a triathlon at the time. You know, Luke Bell was there, Clayton Fatale, I think, was his second Ironman or whatever. And then there was, you know, Luke McKenzie was there and. There were so many guys that were that were there, but yeah, it yeah. was an incredible day. Yeah, it was. That's it that's one of my great memories because also, you know, I hadn't raced since winning in Kona six months before, so that was my first race as Ironman World Champion. And mm-hmm. you know, you don't often triathlon being such a global sport, and a lot of the bigger races being based overseas you didn't get to race that much on home soil as the defending world champion. So it was special for a lot of reasons that, that race. Um, also, you know, they named the two trophies for the men's side. The trophy was the Greg Walsh trophy and, and for the female champion, it was the McKeeley Jones. Keely Jones. So, yeah. 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 It just had that extra little incentive. Um, like you mentioned, you know, we all had the athletes who we were inspired by, as we we're coming up through the ranks, I mean, watching that Tui's Blue series in '94, that and Welshy winning Kona is really what got me into the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and I qualified for the series myself two years later. Um, so, yeah, Melbourne was a great memory. Another race that I have um, fond memories. I, I based in the US for for a lot for about oh, nearly twenty years, and you know there were a lot of iconic races on the u.s circuit um yeah they used to call them the majors or the grand slam chicago was one of them st croix um and in the 2000s what happened i guess in sort of the u.s tri scene you got a couple of uh very wealthy businessmen putting on races that had big prize purses and um, one of them was in minnesota it was the lifetime fitness Mm -hmm. triathlon series and the guy who put that on, Brian McCrady, he owned Lifetime Fitness. It was a chain of gyms and he was based in Minnesota, although the gyms were, uh, well, they're global now, but at the time they had they had a gym in every capital city in the US. Uh, so it was a big company, but he was based in, in Minneapolis and Paul in Minnesota. And, you know, the a lot of the major um, US sporting teams trained in his gyms, a couple of NFL teams and basketball teams the Timberwolves, the Minnesota Timberwolves, and he was amazed at the money that those sports attracted. Yeah, he was an avid cyclist and triathlete himself, and he wondered why triathlon never really had, um, I guess, events with that kind of prize money. So he took it upon himself to put one on. He put his money where his mouth was, and we had the the Lifetime Fitness Triathlon event, which was was very unique in terms of it was the highest prize purse Mm -hmm. in our sport. Uh, but also it was a unique format. It was it was an invitation-only race, raced over the Olympic distance. Uh, you had to – all the athletes had to submit their resumes 
in, early in the year and then they picked who they considered the best 20 males and 20 female Olympic distance triathletes in the world um, based on, I guess, your previous 12 months' results. And then there was another twist. It was they had a, a unique format called the Battle of the Sexes where they would yeah. look at all the major races for 12 months and look what the average time between the male winner and the female winner was and they had they had some formula they called the equaliser and it would spit out a time differential and, and the, the ladies would go off and we'd all have to stand on the beach with this big clock counting down and then we'd go off and, and chase them. So, I'm sure that time stood still too. You're watching the clock tick over oh. and you're like, how is this only <laughs> one minute? Like just, yeah, I'm sure it, it was uh, it, yeah, mentally challenging. Mate, it absolutely was. We all had to stand there on the start line. <laughs> and you were just watching the girls disappear around the swim course <laughs> and, and head back in. And So to answer your question, in, in 05 I won the race. I was the first yeah. guy to catch the girls. I caught Emma Snowsill with about 3K to run and, it was a very satisfying victory because I had initially wanted to pursue going to the Olympics and in 2002 I was on the, the squad to, to go to the Commonwealth Games in Manchester and I actually got sick. I got the chicken pox and, and didn't make it to the final two trial events and that's what I guess that was the catalyst that sent me to the US for the first time and and I never really looked back after that. I, I found mm-hmm. my niche over there. I loved racing the US circuit. Um, there was a lot of, like I said, the races that I'd heard about or watched on television. I mean, the St. Croix race I'd watched on television before I'd ever done a triathlon. Um, that's the race where yeah. they go up that famous climb, the beast. The beast, uh, yeah. Yeah, 20% climb. And yeah. So I'd seen a lot of these sort of prestigious, iconic races. Chicago was another one. And I finally found myself over there in 02 doing those races. And uh, you mentioned Bill Deverett. He was the high-performance manager for mm-hmm. Triathlon Australia at the time. And and in fairness, Bill always would reach out to me and say, you know, we'd love you to come back and um, be part of uh, the program. You know, we'd like you to try out for the major championships, Olympics and, and whatnot. And I had just found a, a style of racing and, well, I guess a, a – a circuit of races that I really loved. Every race on the US circuit kind of felt like Noosa, the Noosa triathlon. Mm-hmm. It was, it had a big expo. It had five or six or seven thousand people racing. Um, you know, I was starting to get a nice little portfolio of sponsors. I understood what it meant to represent brands and companies, uh, and I was really just enjoying the racing and the training over there. So, yeah, um, you know, Bill. Bill, in, in fairness, he never. He never sort of prevented me from coming back. In fact, he always there was always an open invitation that I would, I would I'd be welcome back, and I'd just I'd have to do what all the other athletes were doing in terms of the the racing they wanted to do. But I was enjoying the racing in the US, and I also liked to sprinkle a few half Ironman races throughout mm-hmm. my schedule each year, which which was kind of hard to do, I guess, with the ITU racing. You had to the sport, you know. You talked about the golden era. You know, the sport has evolved into a lot of great things and. One thing I've noticed in my 25 years is, you know, back in the late 90s and even early 2000s, a lot of athletes would bounce between distances, drafting, non-drafting, yeah. do some sprint distance, go to a few half Ironmans. And I think the level in all the disciplines has increased so much. Now you have to specialise and you see that across the board. You very rarely see, oh, other than Javier Gomez, of course, last year, who's an incredible athlete, he, he mixed it up. But very few athletes... Um, do different distance racing within the same season. There's a lot of athletes who have been successful across different distances and and that makes sense because you cut your teeth in the shorter distances and as you get older and your endurance improves, you step it up, step up distances. And and even then when you step up to half Ironman and Ironman racing, that training, once you recover from it and recover from those races, helps give you a gives you a platform or a foundation where you can build even more speed so you can you can drop back in distance again. You just mm-hmm. can't do it all at the same time. So yeah, um, yeah. I remember yeah, that, I remember guys like Welshie and Mark Allen and and those type of guys would race, as you say, multiple distances throughout the year. And I yeah. think Welshie won multiple world championships, you know, in certain years. And um, I I was actually texting today with someone who you probably name recognised, Cam Dye, who was another guy who was on that US yeah. circuit probably around the same time, but really focused on that non drafting, which you know has gone away now. Unfortunately, there's a lot of those bigger races are 
are, are no longer with us, um, which is a shame. Um, I want to talk yeah. to you a little bit. You talked about the PTO. You talked about the money that's coming into the sport. You talked about the Lifetime Fitness Try event. You talked about you were kind of alluded to high V as well. Do you think that yeah. there's, you know, unfortunately I see it as it's great at the time a lot of money comes into the sport, but similar to professional cycling, it kind of seems like it just comes out of the sport uh, and as quickly as it came in and then it puts us back two or three years um, because it's just not sustainable. Yeah, I, it's, it's an interesting point you make because I think in, in some respects you become a victim of your own success and the sport grew to the point where maybe 10 years ago now, 2010, or maybe even before that, um, you know, short course racing, Olympic distance racing became solely about the ITU, I guess. And mm-hmm. um, so there was, I guess there wasn't room on the schedule for anything else. And it was a real shame because, yeah, guys like Cam, I mean, Cam was a phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. And, you know, for, for 30 or 40 years there was a, a really great circuit of races, not just in the US but all over the world, of non-drafting Olympic distance races that had great prize money mm-hmm. um, and it seemed to just drift away maybe seven or eight years ago now. Um, those races that you mentioned, Lifetime Fitness, it had a lifespan of five or six years. Straight off the back of that, I think in 07, High V came along and, and filled the breach for another five or six years. And Yeah. Um, I think when it's an individual company putting up the money, it's different to a governing body of a sport. And individual companies, they have turnover in marketing departments and their strategies change. And whilst they look at a sport like triathlon and think, you know, that's a good avenue for us to market, the demographics, perfect for where we're headed. Um, you know, their strategies change after five or six years and, and maybe they, they want to divert their marketing budget in another direction. And yeah. And that's why I guess you see companies like Lifetime Fitness, whilst they're still involved in the sport, mm-hmm. it's certainly not at the financial level that it was. And High V, I never did the race in High V, but it came off the back of uh, the race in Minnesota, the Lifetime Race, and it was exactly the same invitation only. Had yeah, massive I mean, prize money. Showed up to yeah, massive prize money, best in the world. Um, yeah, NBC coverage, so great media exposure for our sport, and um, that's great exposure for for the title sponsor. Um, but again, it's they're an individual company whose primary focus weren't wasn't. I mean, they weren't um, a triathlon company. One mm-hmm. was, I guess, a chain of gymnasiums, a health and wellness company, and one was uh, a chain of supermarkets. So, mm-hmm. really, that's their focus. That's their core business. Uh, for a time, I guess they used triathlon as a vehicle to help promote their core business. But then their attention shifts and. We tend to see that it's a it's a great point you raise. How do we keep that investment coming in? Um, yeah, for a long period of time. And I guess with, with the ITU, the investment comes from the government. It's government money. Um, yeah, that's their high performance programs that are funded by um, sports commissions and government. It's taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. So I guess you get guaranteed the longevity so long as your sport can maintain a relevance and can, can maintain a stature within the country that uh, the high-performance framework, it's, you know, I guess Olympic status and, um, yeah. guarantees that. If you're an Olympic sport, then you're guaranteed that funding. But with with that comes a lot of politics and other agendas and, and things as well. So whilst you might have the sustainability model where you might get government funding for a long period of time because you have Olympic status, it brings its own problems. They don't typically allocate the money the way a private business would um, mm-hmm. they, they have different kpis that a business would have so yeah um it comes with its own problems but it's, it's a great question that you raise how do we keep yeah i think it's I, I i keep thinking about it and i don't you know i don't think i have the answer and there's a lot of smarter people than than you and i um respectfully that are working on it and i think that it's been one thing because I love the sport. You know, I'm a historian of the sport. I've grown up and have, you know, been in it for 30 years as a fan and as an athlete. And I just want to make sure that it, it lives, you know, more beyond our generation and even longer. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. With, I want to talk well, a bit about, I mean, about, I mean it's, yeah, you go. Sorry, mate. Yeah. Well, I was going to say to your point, that's, I mean, initially we started talking about the PTO and, and mm-hmm. that's where I guess, to your point, I see, like you, I mean, I don't, I don't want to see 
the sport disappear. I want to be able to turn the television on in 30 years and watch the sport mm-hmm. um, because it's a sport that, you know, we love. And, and those those of us who love the sport and are passionate about it want, to, want to see it thrive and prosper. And, you know, I guess that I see that's where the PTO can play a part. I guess in, in all sports, in your history and your development and your evolution moving forward, there comes a time where it's make or break. And, and I'm not saying that's I'm not saying we're at a make or break time right now, but I see that the evolution and, and I guess now um, the PTO coming onto the landscape could be an important platform that springboards us forward for decades to come. And, you know, people typically hear an athletes association or an organisation or an athletes union and, and particularly governing bodies, they get worried by uh, that sort of thing. But I just see it as another voice at the table, at the negotiating table, and another stakeholder that can help grow the sport. I mean, the athletes themselves are a vital asset. Mm-hmm. That I mean, you know, if we look at our sport the last twelve months, you know, athletes like Mario Mola, Katie Savares, you know, Jan Fredino, um, Annie Howe, Lucy Charles, we we can use these athletes mm-hmm. to grow our sport which will then benefit everybody. I mean, why, why wouldn't we tap in? I mean, any business model should look at utilising your, your best assets to help grow the business. And that, that's all I see the PTO as. And I think the people behind the PTO, that, that's what they see it as. They see yeah. it as obviously you get a, I guess, as a stakeholder, you get a voice at the table. But, you know, with that comes responsibility. It's not about wanting more. It's about helping deliver more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's about helping grow the overall pie. As as athletes and as high-profile professional athletes, you know, I see, you know, the names I mentioned and many more, they're the leaders of, of the sport right now. So why wouldn't we want to push them to the forefront in terms of broadcasting, yeah. um, garnering corporate backing, growing the grassroots, inspiring the next generation, all those things. There's, there's many areas where we can plug Jan and Danny, Richard Murray, Javier Gomez, the Brownleys, yep. Gwen Jorgensen, she's a runner now. But you know, those, why wouldn't we be plugging those athletes in to inspire the next generation, getting them in front of schools, getting them in front of uh, media and, and, and corporates? And I, I just see the PTO as our next step in our evolution in terms of if we want to really take the next step because we're talking about sport now as – an entertainment industry where we're competing with all the other sports out there. A lot of the money comes in from broadcasting. So if we want to package our sport up in a way that makes it watchable to the casual fan, yeah, part of that is, is using our best assets and that's racing, but also in, in other avenues as well. And I, I see the PTO as being instrumental in helping us choreograph all of that. Yeah. I hope you're right. And I think that, um, They'll find their way. You know, it seems like there's been a, a couple of false starts within the PTO and the Collins Cup, but I'm sure they'll, they'll find their way. It seems like they've got some really smart people behind it. My one final thought and comment is, you know, thinking about myself growing up and many of my mates who never did triathlon but knew your name, knew Welsh's name, knew the, the characters um, because of the opportunity to watch it on the weekends. I think the trouble now, there's so much emphasis placed on racing long and going to Kona and doing Ironman that it's not appealing for the average fan to sit down and watch an eight-hour race. So there needs to be ways that we're not only focused on long distance, uh, we're focused on palatable, bite-sized pieces for the, yeah. the casual fan and the consumer because that's the only way you're going to reach that generation. So final thought on that. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree 100%. Um, now, you, from what I can gather, uh, probably never really had any major injuries. You seem really diligent on your recovery. You seem really diligent on strengthening and all those one percenters, as we would call them. Um, do you think it's fair to say that you kind of put in a bit more extra emphasis on that throughout your career? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I was lucky when I started my triathlon journey. As I mentioned, she was my best mate at uni and we were studying – physiology at the time and, and then I went into physiotherapy so um I got a, a front row seat I guess to understanding how the body worked and um you know all sports have their different requirements in an endurance sport that's I guess a repetitive motion over and over again you want to be as efficient as possible and you want to be functionally correct you want to move as functionally well as possible because there's going to be a twofold benefit obviously 
that efficiency piece, you don't want to slow down, but also when you move well, there's less chance of injury. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, warding off injury is very important long-term because it's just that consistency of training over time that builds builds that aerobic base and um, there's no shortcutting that. There's no short-circuiting that, that consistent work that you need to do and how many hours you need to devote to get to that world-class level. So, mm-hmm. you know, I did when I first started in the sport, started running after having, you know, only run in soccer boots for a decade and, and, and cleats and, and on grass. You know, I started running on the road. I, I got shin pain, shin splints, and being a physio student, I knew some physios. I, I went and saw them, and, and I was lucky, you know, the physio I went to, he did a full-body assessment on me, uh, and he said, you're very weak. You're very weak, uh, particularly in your core. And, and I understood how important the core was as the foundation Mm-hmm. for everything, uh, for for moving well, for moving functionally well, but also for power production, for everything, having that stable, strong core. So, yeah, I, I went about not only rehabbing the, the, the shin splints, and fortunately for me they didn't turn into anything more than that. Um, I, I went and rectified the problem, which was I had to get some orthotics, but I also had to work on my core strength and stability. So I went and bought myself one of those blow-up Swiss balls and, I just I yeah. had a thirty or forty minute routine that I did four or five times a week, uh, just in my lounge room. Um, and there's millions and millions of exercises that you can do with a Swiss ball, and then you can progress it to getting some hand weights as well, and a lot of a lot of things um, focusing in on your deep abdominals, uh, lower back, hamstrings, glutes, anything that really any muscle that attaches to the pelvis, and also a lot of those smaller postural muscles I call them that are deep inside that. Just hold the hold the pelvis steady, and they're not. I guess if you think of a quadricep or a hamstring contracting, it's an explosive contraction that generates forward motion. A lot of the muscles that attract to the that attach to the pelvis and hold it are more postural, so it's just a, a long-lasting, low-level contraction. Mm-hmm. So it's about strengthening those, but also activating them, teaching them to turn on and stay turned on for long periods of time by standing on a Swiss ball, by doing repetitive movements on a Swiss ball, and challenging those muscles. Um, constantly and repeatedly over time. I mean, that's how we learn and improve as athletes. It's, it's repetition, whether yeah. it be physical or mental. That, that's how we improve. So, yeah. yeah, no, I I knew the importance of that. And it's good advice. Uh, I, was, I think, uh, yeah, as you say, like a lot of people probably don't put an emphasis on it. You know, it's uh, time starved triathletes or time starved athletes are. You know, the first choice is swim, bike, run, and, uh, you know, long, longer down the list is the strength and the yoga and taking care of yourself. Um, I know that, you know, throughout your career, recovery and recovery tools have changed. You know, when you first started, there definitely wasn't CBD, there wasn't Normatec, there wasn't all of these other products. You were, you seem like you're an early adopter to CBD use, and obviously you're an advocate and, and user and partner of, of iCorp. Tell us about how you kind of went about deciding, you know, whether CBD was for you and kind of what some of the benefits you've seen over the last little while that you've been using it. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, you know, because I think the whole premise of being an endurance athlete, it's like just it's like being anybody, getting about your daily life, whether you have a very busy work life or uh, personal family life. When you're an athlete, it's about consistency, being able to train, recover, and then do it again. And it's like Groundhog Day, but success comes when you just dial up that routine time and again and and obviously underpinned by all the basics of great technique and, and periodization of training, but it's it's the fundamental is consistency. So again, just from my I guess my degree, knowing the importance of not only the training but the recovery, I, I made it a priority. Um, mm-hmm. and long before all, all the I guess the, the normal tech boots and all those things came, I understood implicitly that the, the two most important things you can do for recovery are sleeping and eating. What, the way, how, how you sleep and how often is, is crucially important and, and what you eat, what mm-hmm. you ingest every day, whether it be just normal food or supplements. They're the two, and still to this day, um, I'm a huge believer in body work, massage, um, you know, as I said, those uh, conditioning exercises in the gym, taking muscles through range under load, 
they will help with injury. Um, but recovery starts with sleeping and eating well. That, that should be the cornerstone of whatever level athlete you are. Um, and you talk about, you know, a time-pressed triathlete prioritising, and then they do. You, you often go to the swim, bike, run sessions first. Mm-hmm. That's where I see something like a, a Swiss ball session in your lounge room for 20 minutes, three nights a week. You could easily fit that in your routine and whatever level athlete you are, you need to make it a priority. Mm-hmm. And that's the same with, with your sleeping and your eating. So um, I understood very well that the things that I ingested helped with my recovery. So I've always been sort of attuned to what the latest or the newest theory is, what's, um, you know, what's out there, what's available. So I did try and get ahead of the game. I think I was the first triathlete ever to use the compression boots. Um, I know I was the first triathlete that Norma Tech ever sponsored. And um, I just, I tried to get ahead of the game with that stuff because I understood how important it was over a season to recover well. As you mentioned, even if it's only half a percent better every day, that has an accumulative effect. And mm-hmm. I understood, I, I sort of, uh, I'd been turning more of my focus away from those external factors to more internal factors like diet and nutrition probably five or six years ago. And I'd read a lot about CBD use, particularly in North America. A lot of athletes were already using it as an alternative to over-prescribed anti-inflammatories yeah. that you just buy over the counter. And I was never a huge fan of any of that sort of medication. I stayed away from it. Luckily, pretty much never had to touch any of it. Um, mm-hmm. But I had a lot of training partners who did, and there was a lot of side effects and other things. And and so people I worked with, and, and, and I, I, to be honest, I came more aware of CBD use from friends and colleagues in everyday life. They were using it in everyday life more than in the sporting field. Um, what really, I guess, spiked my interest with iCore was they they developed a CBD blend that was sporting specific. So I thought, well, that's, I guess, more um, up my tree. Uh, so, but I had a lot of friends who were using it with great success. And, you know, when, when you see the sort of the anecdotal evidence pile up, I started doing a bit more research-based reading to find mm-hmm. out what, what's, what's the actual science behind this anyway. And because, you know, having been a physio, and you understand the power of placebo effect as well. So you can have 10 friends tell you how great something is that they're using. And, um, and the bottom line is if something works for you, who cares why it works, it works. But I was wondering, is it an underlying placebo? What, what are the mechanisms at work here? And the more you read, the more you see there is, you know, the benefits of CBD are, are so based in science and um, how strong an anti-inflammatory it is. Um, and, and inflammation is the enemy of, of life really, not only as an athlete. Obviously when you exercise you get inflammation and mm-hmm. you want to control that as much as possible and reduce it as much as possible. But, I mean, there's a lot of other situations in life. I mean, I had a friend who had motor neurons disease um they were using cbd oil um and i know i guess it's one of those things now when you see the benefits of it and you've seen the benefits of it first time waiting for the legislation and the governments to catch up because they're always obviously they're guided by medical boards and they're also influenced by pharmaceutical companies and yeah um they can be slow to change legislation and you know i, I try not to be a cynical person but you we all understand how the world works but for me, as it related to me personally, I just, I've always been a big believer in do your own homework, do your own research, and if you think something might have merit, try it. Mm-hmm. Try it. And that's yeah. what I've always done. That's what, that's what I've done with selecting bikes, selecting running shoes, nutritional products. I've just tried things. I've, I've, I mean, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. Um, and, and I never really do the hard sell to anyone on anything. I just say, well, this was my experience with something. And, you know, with the CBD, I started using it probably two and a half years ago now. So I was, I certainly wasn't uh, undertaking the training loads that I had previously. Um, but I was still training hard and I was still winning, mm-hmm. you know, races on the global circuit. So recovery was still important to me as a 43 44 45 i mean i'm 47 in two months so you know i'm still racing at that level so i'm looking at ways whilst my training load might only be 10 or 15 hours a week some weeks a lot of it's more intensity based now because i have that 
that background of endurance yeah. um, from seven years of Ironman racing, seven or eight years of Ironman racing. And, and a lot of the training that I do for fun, I've always enjoyed the fastest stuff. So that's what I do because my training is based around fun now and, and doing things with my kids. So, um, so I started using it and it helped me recover. It, it helped me back up from hard, yeah. particularly the running, the running sessions. I, I, I tend to see uh, the benefits for me came more on the running side of things, the weight-bearing sport of our three disciplines. And, um, yeah, just helped, it helped me sleep as well. And another big benefit I saw when I used it, was um, especially when I would travel, it mm. helped me get on the time zone. I would sleep a lot better. And and it's funny, you know, oftentimes you don't, when you start using something, and I started using uh, iCore's Daily Blend, I'd take six drops in the morning, six in the evening, and just became part of my routine to do it. And then one trip I, I forgot to pack it. Right. And, and it wasn't until I stopped using it after having used it for four or five months I couldn't understand. I was tired. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I couldn't sleep as well as I had been, and I thought, "Wow, you know, I, I haven't I haven't been using iCore. That's the only thing that's changed in my routine on this trip." And um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's had some good benefits for me. I, I don't really have anxiety issues, but one of my best friends does, so I got him on it, and it's helped him a lot. Um, and I just, I just think we can't, we can't be blind to. Um, the science and, and the research that's out there and, and what it's showing. And also you've got to, it's, it's, I'm, I'm never all about just the science or just anecdotally or it's, it's a combination of all of those things and then my own and my own experience with it as well. And it's, yeah. for me, it's, it's been a no brainer. There's no question it's helped my daily routine. I've got my wife on it now. She works, she has to work one night shift a week. So Neri's using it. Um, and it's helping her sleep as well. Um, so yeah, I've I've been um, using it for well over two years now, and and I just I just believe there's a there's a huge benefit. I've seen a huge benefit in my personal use, and um, I'm not anti pharmaceutical companies or anything, but I'm just I'm always looking for better ways to do things. And mm-hmm. and for a long time, injuries and inflammation was treated with, with you know, I guess those over prescribed anti inflammatories and um, I just think there's a better way yeah. and a more natural way to do it, and I think this is it. Yeah, I agree. I I, I had a similar experience to you. I um, went on a trip and I didn't take my core, and three days in, I'm like, oh yeah, this this really works. Um, so yeah, I, I can understand that experience. I, it sounds like you've got recess happening in the background. I know my kids are upstairs running around like crazy. Um, this has been uh, no, a- yeah, this has been a great great conversation, mate. It's truly an honour. Um, I, I love reminiscing and, and kind of talking about the old, old days and learning more about kind of what you're up to now and how the family's functioning and your plans for the future. So, yeah, uh, really, really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, well, thank you guys for the invite. I'm having a chat, I love to – I mean, I'm like you. I'm, I'm a fan of the sport. I'm passionate about the sport. Um, I just think, you know, it's given, obviously it's – it's been a huge part of my life, but uh, it's a great sport. And I love reminiscing. Like you, I'm a fan of mm-hmm. of every part of it. I mean, I think what we've evolved into is amazing. The future looks looks great, but I like to talk about the old and the old races as well because really all great sports have a great history and a tradition mm-hmm. and, um, you know, a sport, whatever it has evolved into, for a long time, it was built on the back of all those races and, and those traditions that were formed in the 80s and 90s. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's great to reminisce and talk about those those old races and, and, you know, the athletes who inspired us all to get involved. Yeah. Well, thanks for indulging me on that. That was, uh, that was fun. Yeah. No, Craig, thank you very much for taking the time out of your morning to join us. It is, what is it now, 9.30 in the morning over there in Australia? So, but you're also on Friday. You're a day ahead of us. So you see the future, my friend. Um, so as always in closing with the i live stream, the Connected Project, I'm going to give you a 30-second soapbox. So I'm going to remove Travis and myself. You get the screen for 30 seconds. Say anything you want. Tell people anything you want. And then Travis's turn and then my turn. Mate, you broke up a bit there. I missed you. Sorry. You get 30 seconds to tell the world anything you would like right now. 
I can talk about anything I would like. For 30 seconds. Um, Well, I guess in keeping with the theme of the day, I would just like to send a shout-out to all the amazing healthcare workers who, my wife included, of course, who are doing an, they always do an incredible job. And it's funny, isn't it, how it's only in times like these where I guess they get the recognition they deserve. But, um, you know, you guys have been doing incredible work on the front line, trying to keep everybody healthy. And I know we all appreciate what you do. So any healthcare workers out there, thank you. Thanks for what you do for us. Travis, you're up, buddy. Uh, well said, Craig. I agree. I think um, hats off to all those healthcare workers. Hats off to the people who are on the front lines of, of what we're dealing with. Um, it was honestly nice to spend an hour chatting with Craig and not really thinking about um, the issues we're all facing. Um, yeah, thanks again, Craig Crow. It was great to uh, to have this opportunity to, to chat. Um, thanks to John for bringing me on. Um, I'm down in the dungeon today, but uh, hopefully next time I'll be up in the up in the light as well. So looking forward to the next conversation. Stay tuned. And uh, Crowy, thanks, mate. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, Craig. Just so we're clear, I didn't put Travis in the dungeon. He went down there to secure himself away from the kids. And as always on my side, just remember, wash your hands, do your part, keep the distance. This will get over much faster. Thanks to all those on the front lines, my sister-in-law, Miri, and all those close to us who are out there helping others. And um, thank you all. Thank you again to Crowy for indulging my questions and the opportunity to reminisce about the good old days. I look forward to our next conversation a lot. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Inner Voice podcast. There will be many more special edition episodes as a part of the i Connected project as well as regularly scheduled conversations. If you did enjoy the show, I'd love to hear from you on social media. It would also be great if you could recommend the show to a friend. Also, head over to iCoreLabs.com and grab 25% off all of their products. That's iCoreLabs.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Travis McKenzie, and this is the Inner Voice Podcast.